We hear now the word of the Lord, starting in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Ever since I was a child, I've really loved optical illusions. Some of them you just sort of come across. Uh, sometimes these are engineered, things that you can, it's sort of a genre of art where people have uh, deliberately portrayed something in such a way that you look at it and you look at it and you look at it and your mind can't quite wrap your, itself around what you are seeing. Uh, you have an optical illusion where uh, you know something to be true. They either tell you that like these two colors are the same or these two shapes are the same size. But the longer you look at it, you just can't see how that could possibly be true as you evaluate it on external appearances. A lot of these are done by contrasts. So sometimes big things are made to look small uh, by being put against very small things or bigger things. Or sometimes small things are made to look big by being put around smaller things. Or sometimes colors are contrasted uh, in one place against one set of colors in another place in another set of colors. So you can't see how two colors are exactly the same. 
Uh, one of my favorite optical illusions, though, is in real life. You can visit it every year, and I usually do. I've, I think I've told this story before, but uh, there's a pumpkin patch that my family and I always go to each year in the fall, and there's a, a crooked house, this house that's set up, and it's set at a slant. Now, you know going in that the house is at a slant. It's not a straight house, but as you walk in it, and you're getting your bearings and trying to get the gravity uh, just right, because it's hard to navigate around in, at the end of the house, you can see this... Uh, uh, board of wood that's uh, slowly tapered upwards. And what's fun is you put a little golf ball at the, at the bottom of that wood and you see it start to slowly move its way upward. Now, you know what has to be true, that in fact, in the crooked house, it's tilted to such a degree that what appears to be up is in fact slightly tapered down. But for the life of you, you'll stare at that thing and stare at that thing, and it is a wonder every time. I go back every time because you look at it, and it's such a marvelous optical illusion. Well, when, when there's a contrast that forms this kind of illusion, we might also call it a paradox, something that is true, and yet the longer you look at it, you cannot see, by all outward appearances, how it possibly could be true. And the Song of the Suffering Servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 is a paradox. It's that kind of a paradox. You look at it all day and you cannot see how what is said to be true here could possibly be true when you evaluate it according to external appearances. This is a song about Jesus Christ crucified. And right away we are told that he acted wisely in this, that Jesus acted wisely. Well, by all outward appearances, Jesus acted foolishly. No one wants to be crucified, and yet we are told that he acted wisely. By all outward appearances, this is a, a prophecy about how Jesus will be rejected. And yet the scriptures tell us here that he was high, that he was lifted up, and that he was exalted. By the way, that's the same language from Isaiah 6 when we see God high and lifted up in the throne room and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. And that is applied to Jesus here as it foretells of his cross. How can that be? It's a paradox. By all outward appearances, Jesus was weak at the cross and yet the scriptures tell us that at the cross he revealed the strong arm of the Lord's salvation. By all outward appearances, Christ was defeated and conquered by his enemies at the cross and yet the scriptures tell us that he gained the victory. By all outward appearances, Christ was utterly condemned, and yet the scriptures tell us that this condemned man came to secure our salvation. When we look at this externally, what is obvious, what is apparent, what seems to be true as we're staring at it, we are told here is not true. That if we evaluate this on external appearance, we will be seeing an illusion, we will be seeing a paradox, and so we can't rest on what we see with our eyes. We must instead listen to what God is revealing to us in his word. Because the Bible tells us that we are people who are not to walk by sight according to what we see, according to external appearances. We are instead to walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Now we're not going to consider all of this passage. I actually want to just look at two verses in this passage but tonight as we study this, here's our big idea, that God reveals through faith what he veils by sight. God reveals through faith what he veils from sight. So two parts to this. Number one, the wisdom of Christ versus the wisdom of man. 
And then number two, the beauty of Christ versus the beauty of man. The wisdom of Christ and the beauty of Christ versus the wisdom of man and the beauty of man. So let's look at this very first verse that we looked at in verse 13. The very first phrase here, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, this word for wise here is an interesting word. It's not the most common word for wise. The most common word for wise is used about 270 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, whereas this Hebrew word only appears about 70 times. So 270 versus 70. So it's not all that common. Uh, But this word has a very specific meaning. It's a wisdom that is seeking prosperity or it is seeking success. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice if, it, like if, my, if it's like mine that it's footnoted. And so if you look down at the footnote, for mine it's uh, number two, it's behold my servant shall act wisely or my servant shall prosper. Uh, so to give an illustration of what th- this might mean, imagine a, a stock trader or an investment banker who gets someone saying, I have a hot tip for you. I have a lead for you. I know something that is going down. And if you invest your money in this now, you stand to profit immensely. No one knows about this. You would be one of the first. And if you act on this lead now, you stand to prosper greatly. It's that kind of insight, that kind of uh, wisdom that leads to prosperity that's talking about here. Jesus Christ has information, inside information, that others do not know anything about. Those who are evaluating this scene by external appearances know nothing of this wisdom. How can you say that this crucified man is prospering? But he has a lead, and he's going to operate on the basis of this lead. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, this is not the most common word for wisdom, but it may be one of the most significant words for wisdom. It shows up all over the book of Proverbs. But most significantly, this showed up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, in the the telling of the original sin. We read there that the woman was operating and evaluating according to external appearances. We read that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that it was desired to make one wise. That tree was desired to make one wise. Well, that wise word is this same word here. Adam and Eve, operating on the basis of external appearances, had something of an inside tip, a hot lead on how they could prosper. They could be like God, the serpent told them, if they ate from the tree that God had forbidden them from eating. Now, this was a false lead. This was a false tip. They operated on this tip, they acted on it, and they got burned by that lead because they tried to exalt themselves in rebellion against God in his word. That was the wisdom that they sought after, where here we see, behold, the servant of the Lord acts wisely by submitting himself in obedience all the way to death. This is wisdom, the Bible says, not what we would consider to be wisdom by external appearances. Now, this is still true today. The world still does not consider the cross of Christ to be wisdom. And we see that brought about and talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 18 there, we read that the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. It has no wisdom to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Bible is a story about people who are willing to look foolish because they have inside information that they receive by faith and operate on the basis of that. Think how foolish Noah must have looked when he was building an ark 
Think how foolish Abraham must have looked when he moved his whole family to Canaan, a land he'd never been in. He had no connections, no family. Think how foolish he must have looked when he told people he was waiting for a baby at the age of 75 and how much more foolish he would have looked when he was still expecting that baby to come at the age of 100. Think how foolish Joseph looked when he spoke up to tell his brothers to bear faithful witness to what he had been revealed to him in a dream that they would bow down to him. Think how foolish the Israelites must have looked when they smeared blood from a lamb on the doorposts uh, the frames of their doorposts, or when they marched much later around Jericho for seven days rather than attacking it outright. Think how foolish David looked against the giant Goliath, and think how exceedingly foolish Jesus Christ must have looked on the cross. And yet all these knew something that no one else could see. They had inside information that would prosper them, and they believed that information, and they operated on that information, and they were not burned by it. They truly did prosper. They truly had wisdom. Where everyone else walked by sight, they walked by faith. So the paradox we see here is a paradox of wisdom. Again, by all outward appearances, nothing that Christ does in this passage appears to be wise. But next, this passage will tell us about a paradox of beauty. Again, by all outward appearances, what we are told is that Christ does not have the kind of beauty that we would desire. Look at chapter 53, verse 2, as we come to the second section, the beauty of Christ versus the beauty of man. In chapter 53, verse 2, we read, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we, could, we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Again, the problem that we have with Christ, the problem that this passage is laying before us, is saying don't trust what you see with your eyes, don't trust external appearances, is that Christ has no beauty that we should desire him. When we evaluate him by all external appearances, there's no form or majesty that we should see him, look upon him. And he has no beauty that we should desire him. That word beauty even is there is the word, uh, it's related to the word to see. He's not a looker, in other words, we might sort of loosely paraphrase that. We can't look at him. He has no beauty that we should desire him. Now again, these are the words that go back to Genesis 3 verse 6. When the woman saw, that's the word that shows up twice here in 53 verse 2. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she made a judgment about its goodness. When God had said, don't eat from this. And then she saw that it was desire, or that it was a delight to the eyes. It was beautiful in appearance, even though God said, don't eat it. And then she saw that it was to be desired to make one wise. The beauty that she looked upon in that forbidden fruit is the same word that we see here, that, that there was no beauty that we should desire him. Whereas she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It's the same word in both places. Where she desired the fruit to make her wise, Christ had no beauty that we should desire him. Well, just as the whole Bible tells us that we really know nothing when we judge on external appearance about what wisdom is, so the whole Bible tells us that we are terrible at judging beauty. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, when Samuel is sent to try to ordain and uh, anoint a new king on behalf of the people of Israel, he sees one of the house of Jesse come before him, and he looks so good. Samuel thinks, Lord, this must be the one whom you have chosen to be the next king over your people. 
And the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or think in Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now to this day, the world does not judge the cross of Christ as being beautiful, as having beauty. And the reason for this, we are told, the reason is that the world is blinded from seeing the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, this, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We don't desire Christ's beauty because looking at a crucified man in this passage, he appears by all outward appearances to be despised and condemned and rejected when God holds forth his son and says he is the power of God unto salvation. Why can't we see rightly? Well, it's because sin distorts our vision. Because of sin, we're looking for the wrong things, and our appraisal of what is truly beautiful is off. It's sort of like trying to grab something underneath the surface of the water. Have you ever tried to grab something and the light is refracted? So where you reach, well, that's the wrong place for it. Or it's like trying to try clothes on and taking them to a, a funhouse set of mirrors and your body is all big one place and skinny another place. Well, you can't tell if those clothes fit. Your eyes are deceived about what you were trying to do. Or it's like that crooked house where what's up seems down and what's down seems up because of that optical illusion. We don't recognize wisdom for what it is and we don't recognize beauty, as God puts it, for what it is. So if we can't judge or evaluate Christ's wisdom externally and his beauty by outward appearances, what should we do? Well, remember our big idea that God reveals through faith what he veils from sight. So as a church, we exist, really, the Bible tells us, for one purpose, to help people to see the glory of Jesus Christ. This is veiled from them. Uh, they look around the world and Christ does not appear to be anyone who we should take seriously. It doesn't appear to be glorious. And yet we are the ones who have the scriptures that tell us that indeed Christ is the one who is radiant beyond all comprehension. Christ is the one who acted wisely by going to the cross. We have that message. We can help people to see the glory of Christ. But of course, that will require the work of God to open their eyes to see. I pray for that every time I preach. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand all that is contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be praying for this and sharing the word of God that helps people to see the glory of Christ. We're not talking about physical sight. God reveals through faith what he veils from sight. We're talking about helping people to see and desire his beauty as they grow in his wisdom. So how does that happen? Well, one application, and let's start here, is that we must study God's word with a very clear purpose. We must study God's word to learn how to see. God's word opens up for us a new field of vision. I've never been hunting, but I know hunters, and I understand that hunters have to spend a lot of time learning to see how all those animals are camouflaged. God gave them natural camouflage to hide from predators. 
and hunters have to learn how to discern what is an animal in the midst of all of their camouflage out in nature. Think about football players. I assume this is true for all sports, but I know football the best. They very detailed study, give a very detailed study to the offensive and defensive schemes of the other team to learn what to expect and what the tendencies are. If the tight end goes in motion, they want to know what the other team is up to. If the linebacker comes to the line of scrimmage, they want to know what the other team is up to. They have eyes to see that even I don't have after all the football I've watched over the course of my life. Think about people who follow every word of politics. They can hear politicians saying things that the uninitiated cannot necessarily hear. They have eyes to see it. Or think about someone who tries to learn uh, Chinese or Korean or Arabic or Hebrew. If you're coming from English, the language will be in all what just looks like squiggles and incomprehensible markings. But as you learn those languages, suddenly those incomprehensible squiggles gain deep meaning. The same is true with the Bible. At first, the Bible just looked like a clumsy set of rules for how to behave well. But the longer we study God's word, we learn to see God's wisdom and the beauty of Christ in that wisdom. Because God works, God's word excuse me, teaches us to see things as they are not to judge them according to merely external appearances. When we judge by external appearances, we end up calling evil good. That's what it appears. That's what the, the, the forbidden fruit appeared to Adam and Eve. They called it good when God had called it evil. But when we judge by faith, we don't do that. We judge according to what God has said to be true. God's word cuts through outward appearances so that we can see things rightly. We won't call evil good or good evil we will call things what they are. We will call good, good, and evil, evil. So this is why we study the Bible. As a church, this is why we are obsessed with the Bible, why we preach the Bible, teach the Bible, because we want to learn to see new things. Open my eyes, O Lord, that I may behold wondrous things from your law. That's what we have to be seeing. The second application is this, that we must grow in wisdom by constant practice. This doesn't come like that. We must grow in wisdom by constant practice to learn to see the world through the lens of Scripture. Andrew's been preaching through Hebrews, and a, a few sermons ago from Hebrews, he was uh, preaching from Hebrews chapter 5, where the author of Hebrews was lamenting the fact that he couldn't give solid food to the people to whom he was writing. Now, they were so immature that they could only stomach milk from God's Word. Not solid food, but milk. And so he wrote in Hebrews 5, verse 14, he said, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. That's what Adam and Eve were after. They tried to discern good from evil when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by sight. They looked at it and thought they could judge by external appearances. But we have to have our powers of discernment trained to discern good from evil and we do this by faith. We do this according to what we hear from God's word, not what we see externally. You know, you think about our sermon this morning in, in Genesis chapter 50. Uh, Joseph said to his brothers that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's a, that's a profound kind of statement. Joseph had suffered great evil at their hands, and he doesn't diminish their evil, the evil of their evil. Rather, he can still nevertheless see how God is working in his goodness to channel that evil for a good purpose, to keep many alive as they are to this day. 
He was able to discern this because his whole life had been trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. We need to grow in that kind of wisdom, which means we need to grow in our constant practice, constantly weighing everything around us against the standard of God's word. That's why it's so good to be here again on the Lord's Day as we come together to hear God's word again, to sing God's word as we sang Psalm 2, which, by the way, is about false external appearances. The nations are raging and they think that they can cast off the anointed's bonds and God who sits in the heavens laughs. That's what's true. The ragings of this world are just what it appears to be. It's an illusion. An illustration of this, um, of the kind of uh, constant practice this takes, um, I had a chance when I was in high school to go to France, which was a wonderful opportunity. Now, I had studied French for three years, and uh, most of that, you know, was like a typical high school French curriculum. I tried to memorize vocabulary. I learned the forms of different words. I tried to practice it in class with a bunch of other people who couldn't speak it a lick at all either. Um, but I worked hard at it. I wanted to learn French well. Well, I tell you, all of that as I was practicing and trying to do the best I could, when I got to France and was just cast into the home of some French people, and they could really only speak French, Oh my goodness, all that I had learned for three years in that week just doubled because I was immersed in the language. I had constant practice, not just a little class here and there, not just a little studying for a test here and there, but I was immersed in the language. We need to be immersed in God's word in that way, where it's not just something we hear for an hour on Sunday, but it's something that's filling our lives and our minds. That's the way we move from a basic view, which sees the Bible as just a clumsy rule book to seeing it as the wisdom of God against and contrary to all outward appearances. We need that immersion of constant practice. Well, the third application I'd give us is this, that we must not only cultivate wisdom for our minds, but we must cultivate godly desires as we contemplate God's wisdom. Understand our thinking shapes our desires. Now, this runs absolutely contrary to what the world says about our desires. The world says that our desires are fixed, innate, critical components of who we are. You think about any Disney movie you've ever seen. What's the message there? Follow your heart. That's the truest, purest expression of who you are. If you follow that, you can't go anywhere wrong. It will take you to where you want to be. Or I, I read a... Um, a man named uh, Cal Newport. Uh, he's really interesting on productivity and some things like that. And he made the same argument about careers. He said most of the time, people who are unhappy in their careers are so because they have this, they believe this Disney myth that there's sort of this innate passion in my soul and I know it's there and my really, the thing I need to do is to match that passion with a job. And until I've matched my passion with a job, then I can't possibly be happy because my desires will lead me to where I need to be. He says, don't do that. That'll just make you miserable in life. Or think all the way to the confusion of sexuality that is in our culture, which says that my confusion about my sexuality or my sexual orientation is the truest expression of my identity. It is fixed, it is inviolable, and it cannot change. The Bible says something completely different. The Bible says our desires are not fixed. They are not certainly the truest parts of who we are. The Bible tells us that our desires are shaped and cultivated by certain forces and factors, and especially that our desires are cultivated by contemplation, by what we think about. We don't have these pre-existing fixed desires that must be actualized to be happy in life. Our desires, rather, are shaped 
and formed by what we spend our time, energy, and effort considering. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote this. He says, what the heart likes best, the mind studies most. That means both that we gravitate toward what we think about most often, and that what we think about most often will be what we end up gravitating toward. Here we read in Isaiah 53 verse 2 that Christ has no beauty that we should desire him. And yet in Song of Songs 5 verse 10, we read that the beauty of the anointed one, the beauty of the Messiah, the beauty of the Christ is radiant and ruddy and distinguished among 10,000 for those who have eyes to see him. Christ is radiantly beautiful for those who have eyes to see him. The 18th century preacher Edward Young wrote this. He says, if therefore we do not desire Christ enough, it is because we contemplate him too little. We have to think. Our thinking is what shapes our desires. Think about what this means. It means you can grow in your wisdom. It means you can grow in your desires, especially for Christ. You can certainly grow in your desires for sin as well, but you can grow in your desire for Christ. Wisdom isn't for just some people who have that gift over there. Wisdom is cultivated. It's not guaranteed to anyone, but wisdom is for those who meditate on God's word. Psalm 119 verse 99 says that I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. That's what I'm contemplating. That's what I'm thinking. I'm immersed in thinking constantly over and over and over on your word, Lord. The Bible tells us that we should be studying God's wisdom and we should be praying for God's wisdom. James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. It doesn't come by relying on what we can see. It doesn't come by relying on external appearances. The wisdom that we need, Christ, the wisdom of God. The beauty that we need, Christ, the image and the glory of Almighty God. This can come not by sight, but by faith. And so brothers and sisters, that's why we're here tonight. To hear God's word and then to respond to him in prayer to hear his exhortation to see the true wisdom of Jesus Christ high and lifted up, exalted on the cross, and to respond to him as we ask for wisdom. So let's pray. I'll close this sermon, and uh, then we'll pray together as a congregation. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you clear away the blindness from our eyes by your word and by the power of your spirit who gives us eyes to see. We pray that by your word and your spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, and that you would give us a desire for the radiant beauty of Jesus Christ, who is radiant and radiant, distinguished among 10,000. We pray that our desire for his beauty would grow all the days of our life and on into eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray.